Chapter 3. The Location and Condition of the Dead If the inconsistent translation of nefesh, or soul, in the English versions obscures the fact that both animals and man possess a soul, an even more serious confusion was introduced by the indiscriminate use of the word hell to render two entirely different biblical terms, one describing the location of all the dead and another meaning a place of future punishment for the wicked, as to say hell fire. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word sheol, the Greek equivalent being Hades or Adis, as we would pronounce it in contemporary Greek, rendered as hell, the grave or the pit, designates the place to which all, both just and unjust, go at death. This location is described as being under the earth, for when Korah and Dathan and Abiram were condemned to die, we read, and I quote, the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that belonged to Korah and all their goods. They and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed upon them. That's from Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 and 32. There can be no doubt that according to the Old Testament, all souls, good and bad alike, are consigned at death to Sheol, or Hades, the world of the dead. The psalmist asks, and I quote, What man is he that lives and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of Sheol? That's Psalm 89, verse 48. The same truth is expressed by David, speaking of Christ, that Christ's soul, he himself, that is, should not be left in Hades. You'll find that in Psalm 16, verse 10, Acts 2, verse 27 and 31. And Jacob, hearing of Joseph's disappearance, refused to be comforted and said, I quote, I will go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Genesis 37, verse 35. And in Isaiah 5, verse 14, the prophet refers to Sheol as enlarging itself to receive the dead who go down into it. In Isaiah 14, verse 11, the pomp of the king of Babylon, and in verse 15, the king himself, are brought down to Sheol. There are other kings lying there in their tombs, verse 18. The same context refers to carcasses and burial, and the whole picture confirms what we find throughout the Bible, that Sheol, or Hades, is the world of the dead, what we might accurately describe as gravedom. An interesting confirmation of this occurs in Revelation 20, verse 13, where the dead in the sea are apparently distinguished from the dead in Hades, the grave. The sleep of death. The condition of the dead in Sheol or Hades is consistently described in Scripture as a state of sleep. Sheol is not a place of torment, for it contains both the wicked and the faithful. The Hebrew shachav, to sleep, recurs again and again in the familiar expression, 
that the one who died, quote, slept with his fathers. 1 Kings 2, verse 10, and so on. That's to say that he joined his predecessors who were already sleeping. From this most telling phrase, so unlike our popular language about death as, quote, passing on or going home, we learn that the dead rest in unconsciousness. There's no hint that the real person was not asleep, but fully alive elsewhere as a spirit. From Psalm 6 and verse 5, we discover that, quote, there is no remembrance of God in death. From Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, we learn that the dead, quote, know nothing at all. Psalm 13 verse 3 speaks of the sleep of death, and Psalm 146 verse 4 describes the process of death quite specifically. I quote, In that very day man's thoughts perish. For, quote, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. That's a quotation from Psalm 115 verse 17. Daniel looks forward to the eschatological resurrection and sees the dead awaken from their sleep in the dust. It is not that the dead once fell asleep and immediately became conscious departed spirits destined to join their bodies at the resurrection. Such an idea cannot possibly be forced into the scriptural record. For Daniel 12 verse 2 describes resurrection for us unmistakably as the revivication of those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth. They are in the dust until they emerge to participate in the life of the age to come. Precisely the same truth is taught in Job chapter 14 verses 11 to 15. Here Job contemplates the prospect of resurrection. Man dies and wastes away. Man gives up the spirit, and where is he? As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decays and dries up, so man lies down and rises not. Until the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time I will wait till my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will have a desire to the work of your hands. The raising of Lazarus, with the much greater emphasis on resurrection in the New Testament, goes a parallel emphasis on sleep as the condition which precedes it. In Matthew 27, verse 52, we read that, quote, many bodies of the sleeping saints arose. That is, the saints awoke from the sleep of death. In John 11, verse 11, to which we've already referred briefly, the story of Lazarus gives us the clearest possible account of the, quote, mechanics of death from the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, in full knowledge of Lazarus' death, says, 
I quote, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to waken him. Jesus, says John, had spoken of Lazarus' death, though his disciples had taken his words to mean natural sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus died. The well-known account which follows describes how the Lord called forth the dead man from the tomb. I quote, And he who had been dead came out, bound hands and feet with grave clothes. To impose upon this matchless account the alien idea that Lazarus, a departed spirit, had been for four days fully conscious in another place is surely a travesty of sound exegesis. The simplicity of the Hebrew notion of death as the cessation of life and the suspension of consciousness stands in sharp contrast to the Greek dualistic system which denies the reality of death by supposing that the real man has survived as a disembodied spirit. Act 7, verse 60, must similarly be preserved against the inroads of tradition, which have often led us to divorce the personal pronouns from the real person. Stephen, it is said, committed his spirit to God, and he, Stephen, fell asleep. The death of David is described quite unequivocally, for, quote, he died and was buried, and his tomb is amongst us to this day. Acts 2, verse 29. He fell asleep, says Paul, and was added to his fathers, who themselves had died, not receiving their promised reward, according to Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 39. And he saw corruption. Acts 13, verse 36. David, we read, has not ascended into the heavens. Acts 2, verse 34. We must here take issue with the attempts that have been made by commentators to insist that David did ascend to heaven in spirit but not in body. Such exegesis must amount to a flat contradiction of the Apostle's statement. Further consistent use of sleep as the description of the death condition is found in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Quote, Since the fathers fell asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, The Christian dead are sleeping. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, Quote, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband died, literally in the Greek, if he has fallen asleep, she's free to be married. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, many of the church members, quote, are sleeping, the present tense is significant, that is, are dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, some of those who had seen the Lord had fallen asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18, Paul states the necessity for a future resurrection by arguing that without it, those who have died, as to say, fallen asleep, have perished. Such a contention is strong evidence indeed against Paul's having entertained the idea 
that they were already alive. William Tyndale's protest, our conclusion must be that the dead in both Old Testament and New Testament are dead without distinction, awaiting life in the resurrection. Such a proposition is, in fact, the only one consonant with the idea of a future resurrection to judgment for the wicked. For what sense can there be in a present punishment for the wicked dead if, in fact, they are to be judged in the future? This would be placing punishment before sentence. Equally for the righteous, the notion of a present conscious bliss negates the whole New Testament insistence on the future resurrection which alone confers immortality. It was this important consideration that prompted William Tyndale, a staunch supporter, as was Wycliffe before him, of the view for which we are contending, to protest, and I quote, and ye, addressing the Roman Catholics, in putting departed souls in heaven, hell, and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. The true faith putteth the resurrection, which we be warned of to look for every hour. The heathen philosophers, denying that, did put that the souls did ever live. And the Pope joineth the spiritual doctrine of Christ and the fleshly doctrine of philosophers together, things so contrary that they cannot agree, no more than the spirit and the flesh do in Christian men. And because the fleshly-minded Pope consenteth unto heathen doctrines, therefore he corrupteth the scriptures to establish it, and again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they be not in as good case as the angels be. And then what cause is there for the resurrection? That's from William Tyndale's view as expressed in an answer to Sir Thomas More's dialogue. The same warning against the danger of reading Greek views of death into the Bible has come from many different theological camps. The evangelical scholar George Eldon Ladd refers to the commonly held tenet that, quote, when we die we go to heaven, and says of that idea, such thinking, popular as it is, is more an expression of Greek thought than of biblical theology. That's from George Ladd's book, The Last Times. It is our desire that this fact be widely recognized so that traditions which have been absorbed from Greek philosophy may be rejected in favor of the biblical teaching. The death of Jesus. The traditional notion of a separate conscious soul or spirit surviving death has nowhere wreaked more havoc on the scriptural account than in the matter of the death of Jesus. It is not unusual to encounter analyses of the Lord's death in which it is proposed that his body went to the grave, his spirit to heaven, and his soul to Hades. 
At this point, one is bound to ask, where was Jesus? The question, however, would not have occurred to the Hebrew writers of the New Testament, for they did not approach the subject with the Greek presuppositions about the nature of man, which have become so deeply ingrained in our theology. The biblical fact is that Jesus died. He, Jesus, was in Hades, the grave. We've already seen that, quote, his soul is the Hebraism for himself. In Acts 2, verse 27, Peter gives proof of the resurrection of Jesus by saying that, quote, his soul was not left in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The ordinary Hebrew parallelism confirms the equation of, quote, his soul with, quote, Holy One. The message is simply that Jesus was not left dead in the grave, as Peter goes on to explain. David in the Psalms, foreseeing the resurrection of the Messiah, stated that his soul, that's to say he himself, was not abandoned to Hades, the world of the dead, but was resurrected to life. This account of the death and resurrection of the indivisible personality of Jesus of Nazareth will help to clarify the reference in 1 Peter 3, verse 19, to his having gone to preach to the spirits in prison. This preaching is said to have been accomplished by Christ when he was, quote, made alive in the spirit. This is clearly language descriptive of the resurrection state. John 5, verse 21, quote, the Father raises the dead and makes them alive. Romans 8, verse 11, I quote, He who raised up the Christ will make your mortal bodies alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, I quote, In Christ shall all be made alive, that's to say, resurrected. Thus it was that when newly resurrected from the dead, Jesus announced this triumph to the spirits, here being most easily understood as the fallen angels of 2 Peter 2, verse 4. The term soul, used of the eight souls saved in the flood, is a typical use of soul to designate, by contrast with spirit, a human person. The confusion of these terms is due, we suggest, to the introduction of the foreign idea of man as surviving death as a disembodied spirit. This concept, so repugnant to the Hebrew mind, as Alan Richardson says, must be banished before we can approach the scriptures in sympathy with the biblical anthropology. The need for a sound biblical doctrine of man. Our purpose thus far has been to challenge the widespread view of man as innately immortal. Those holding this view will naturally see death as affecting the physical man only, in other words, the real self under this view will not die. It will merely pass to a fully conscious existence on another plane. We contend that nothing like that sort of analysis of the future of man is found in Scripture. The biblical hope 
is related exclusively to immortality as a gift to be conferred on mortal man through resurrection. The notion of innate immortality represents a dangerous interference with the biblical doctrine of resurrection, indeed with the whole divine plan for salvation. It is a little-known fact that experts from widely differing theological camps and spanning the whole history of Christianity have expressed the strongest support for the biblical view of man as a complex unity. Yet traditional theology has so often been hampered by the all-pervasive influence of Augustinian Platonism. This intrusion of an alien metaphysic must, we believe, be taken seriously. If Peter the Apostle urges us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and if ignorance alienates us from God, Ephesians 4, verse 18, it cannot be right that the universally cherished belief in the immortality of the soul be allowed to persist as a tenet of the Christian faith. J.A.T. Robinson says, I quote, It rests on theological assumptions which are fundamentally at variance with the biblical doctrine of man. When the Church of England produced its plan dedicated to the memory of William Temple, entitled Towards the Conversion of England in 1945, the following statement was made. The inherent indestructibility of the human soul or consciousness owes its origin to Greek, not to Bible sources. The central theme of the New Testament is eternal life, not for anybody and everybody, but for the believer in Christ as risen from the dead. The choice is set before man here and now. B.F.C. Atkinson made his contribution to the debate when he wrote, quote, Both man and animals are souls. They are not bipartite creatures consisting of a soul and a body which can be separate and go on subsisting. Their soul is the whole of them and comprises their body as well as their mental powers. They are spoken of as having soul, that is, having conscious being. That was from Atkinson's Life and Immortality. It has for too long been accepted uncritically that the, quote, intermediate state with which it's customary to comfort the bereaved fits naturally into the eschatological scheme of the biblical writers. It comes as a shock to discover, on the authority not only of the Bible, but so many authoritative commentators, that the notion of a disembodied consciousness for man is quite out of harmony with biblical thinking. This should deter us from teaching our children and preaching at funerals the present survival of the dead beyond the skies. A former Regis professor of theology warned us that the, quote, Christian faith does not divide or oppose body and soul as corruptible 
and incorruptible parts of a hybrid nature. The whole man dies as the whole Christ died, and the whole man will be raised in Christ to life. The resurrection of Jesus was not an escape of soul from body. It was the raising up of one who died and was buried. That was from the belief of Christendom by John Burnaby. Such statements as these strike at the very root of a conscious intermediate condition between death and resurrection, for they affirm that man is simply dead and buried, albeit in Christ's safekeeping, awaiting a resurrection from the dead. Other biblical scholars, another prominent scholar, F. F. Bruce, is no less emphatic that the notion of disembodiment upon which our idea of the intermediate state is founded, is unthinkable for Paul. I quote, Paul evidently could not contemplate immortality apart from resurrection. For him, a body of some kind was essential to personality. Our traditional thinking about the, quote, never dying soul which owes so much to our Greco-Roman heritage, makes it difficult for us to conceive of Paul's point of view. To be without a body of any kind would be a kind of spiritual nakedness or isolation from which Paul's mind shrank. He could not conceive of conscious existence and communication with his environment, in a disembodied state, as from F. F. Bruce's Drew Lecture on Immortality in 1970. It's a very singular fact that one appearance in Scripture of the Greek term denoting disembodiment occurs in a context in which Paul makes clear his horror at such a condition. Yet we are apparently committed to a belief in just such a post-mortem state for the deceased. No doubt in our heart of hearts we share Paul's unwillingness to entertain seriously the idea of conscious existence without a body, but our creeds seem to require that the deceased be comforted immediately, even while the living remain in the flesh. The all-important question is whether we are thus perpetuating a traditional teaching which cannot be logically squared with the Bible teaching about the nature of man and his future resurrection from the dead. The heart of the biblical consolation for the dead lies not in a present disembodiment, but in a future resurrection to glory. What is needed is faith in the certainty of that coming event. John Burnaby alludes also to the great danger of maintaining a concept which detracts from the resurrection dependent upon the return or parousia of Christ. Referring to the traditional intermediate state, he says, and I quote, this gives comfort to the individual facing death 
and still more to those whom he leaves behind, which must be lacking in the simple expectation in the end. But it's not easy to combine with the resurrection. For if I can be with Christ without my body, to what purpose will be the new body when it comes? As from Burnaby's The Belief of Christendom. Just so, the point is exactly right. In fact, his warnings are more than justified when one considers that the great event which marks the resurrection, the parousia, or second coming, has been tragically neglected in so much preaching. Could this possibly have happened if that event had been understood with the New Testament as the glorious moment when the dead first come consciously into the presence of Christ. There are therefore two major difficulties in positing, on the basis of Scripture, a conscious intermediate state. The first is that the possibility of disembodiment has to be imported into Scripture. It is, as we've seen, alien to the hope of the New Testament writers who look always for one grand climax to the Christian venture. This is a resurrection of the whole man at the future coming of Christ. Secondly, the notion that at death the goal is achieved apart from resurrection at the parousia reduces the resurrection to a mere appendix in the Christian eschatological scheme. The resurrection becoming thus an afterthought, the parousia, and indeed the kingdom of God to follow it, ceased to have any real significance in the mind of the believer. Who will deny that the results of such an impoverished eschatological view are not easily recognizable in the churches today? It is surely not without significance that Paul's final words to Timothy involve a solemn declaration before God and the Lord Jesus Christ of his hope for the appearing and the kingdom of Christ. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 That those events, including the resurrection of the dead, are the real center of interest in biblical theology cannot be denied. There must be no deflection of interest onto a supposed intermediate state. It is the serpent's lie that, quote, thou shalt not surely die, which has bedeviled much of the discussion about the state of the dead. The stark contrast between life and death has been blurred in such a way as to exclude the possibility of real death of personality. But death in the Bible is the cessation of conscious existence. The reversal of that dreadful state can only be accomplished by the resurrection of the dead to life. Any theology which does not maintain resurrection at the very heart of its message has lost contact with the biblical revelation. The power of traditional theology to impose itself as the only reasonable view 
has meant that any idea which arises to challenge its supremacy appears as an unwanted intruder. The negation of the conscious intermediate state before the resurrection has come to be associated with the sectarian mind and not with the mainstream churches. But are we right to reject and appeal for a return to biblical thinking, especially when it's endorsed by so many distinguished expositors, including Wycliffe, Tyndale, and a host of other biblical scholars.